Hello and welcome to the Good Teaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Toyin Ali. This is the podcast where we ask college instructors what are their most effective teaching strategies. And I'm so honored to have a wonderful guest here with us today. So today we have Dr. Carlotta A. Berry, and she is a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Rose Holman Institute of Technology. She is the 2021 to 2024 Dr. Lawrence G. Lawrence J. Giacoletto Endowed Chair for Electrical and Computer Engineering. She has a bachelor's degree in mathematics from Spelman College, a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from Georgia Tech, master's in electrical engineering from Wayne State University, and a PhD from Vanderbilt University. She is one of a team of engineering faculty at Rose Holman to create the first multidisciplinary minor in robotics. She's the co-director of the NSF STEM Rose Bud program, which stands for Building Undergraduate Diversity and advisor for the National Society of Black Engineers. Dr. Berry's research interests are in robotics, education, interface design, human-robot interaction, and increasing underrepresented populations in STEM fields. She has a special passion for diversifying the engineering profession by encouraging more women and underrepresented minorities to pursue undergraduate and graduate degrees. She feels that the profession should reflect the world that we live in in order to solve the unique problems that we have, that we face. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Barry. Thank you for having me, Dr. Ali. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh my goodness, so exciting to meet you. I have seen your videos on Instagram where you share with engineering students how they can be successful. And I didn't know that you have a degree in math, so I'm a mathematician. So, so nice to meet someone who also loves math. <laughs> So let's jump right in with a little bit of background. So can you share with us a little bit about your journey? So it could be a short version or a long version, your journey to getting your PhD in electrical engineering and also becoming a professor and endowed chair. We haven't had a chair on the podcast yet. Thank you. Um, I'll try to give you the medium version since I have a choice. Um, my journey to be an engineering professor started when I was an undergrad at Georgia Tech. Um, I have a degree from Spelman and Georgia Tech because I honestly just wanted to be a math teacher. Mm -hmm. My original goal was to be a high school math teacher. I wanted to teach calculus or trig. And when I was in high school, because I was also good at science as well as math, I had a career coach through the En-ROADS program, which I was in, encouraged me to consider engineering because I really didn't know what an engineer was. I said, well, I'm still going to get my math degree because just in case this engineering thing doesn't work out, I want to have my math to fall back on. Um, so I think now being an engineering professor, I'm able to feed both of my loves because I always wanted to be a teacher. It's just now I teach engineering instead of math, but there's so much math in engineering that I'm still a math teacher at heart. Um, so I decided to become a professor while at Georgia Tech because there's just a lot, not a lot of black and brown people in engineering, not a lot of women, in particular black women in engineering. And I just really felt like there was a better way to teach. So I honestly got my PhD not to be a researcher, not to run a big lab, but to be an educator. I wanted to be an engineering educator to show that engineering could be engaging, engineering could be fun, and to break the mold of what people think engineers look like. We're more than Dilbert, we're more than MacGyver, we're more than Sheldon. We can be somebody who can be approachable, fun, real, 
um, all of those things and still be technically competent. And so I wanted to show that there was a different way of doing engineering. So as being a tenured professor, you have to obviously get tenure and promote it. So my most recent promotion was to a full professor about three or four years ago. So being in, thank you. So being an endowed chair um, does not mean I run the department. This is a confusion that some people have because some schools call the person who runs the department head. Some people mm -hmm. call the person who runs the department chair. At my school, that person is called the head. So I do not run the department. But what an endowed chair is, is someone has given money to the school, earmarked, to be used for a specific pur purpose. So in this case, Lawrence Giacoletto gave money to the electrical and computer engineering department because he was a graduate of that program. And it was to support faculty who wanted to do some special task or project with students. Mine was to do robotics education and human robot interaction and inter human robot interfaces. So a big part of what I do with my endowed chairship is I mentor undergraduate students in the development of open source robots to make robotics more accessible to my marginalized and minoritized communities. And by making them open source, K through 12 teachers, college students, college professors, et cetera, can 3D print their own robots and have complete access to all of our, all of our materials for designing and building the robot, as well as the software we use to create that through YouTube, through um, Hackster.io, through Instructables, through GitHub, YouTube, LinkedIn. And the model for my project is Robotics for the Streets. So we put robotics wherever the people are. So that's what I do with my endowed chairship is we do open source robotics in order to diversify the community of STEM and to make it more accessible and inclusive to some of those communities that may be under-resourced. What an amazing goal. I love that story. I had no idea what you were going to share about the endowed chairhood, but like, that's really cool. And I was just like thinking about my students because I teach a lot of engineering students they would love your project. It's so awesome. Thank so I'm you. so happy that your students have someone like you who's doing this awesome work that maybe a professor who didn't like look like you would even think of. So awesome. I love the work that you're doing. So right now we are recording this in the fall of 2023. So I imagine you're teaching at least one class this semester. So how is your semester going? What are like the responsibilities you have? So my school is actually on quarters. It's one of the rare universities that has not changed yet. So this is actually the last week of the quarter. We have a 10-week quarter, and next week is finals week. Our uh, quarter switches over at Thanksgiving. So we will start a new quarter the Monday after Thanksgiving. So I am also at a teaching school. So one of my missions for becoming an engineering educator, as I just said, I didn't want to be in a big R1 research university because I would have then to have to be more focused on my PhD students, writing grants, writing papers, my research lab, than being an educator. So being that I teach at a teaching school, we have a very high teaching load because my research, although it's also important, is more considered professional development. So because of that, I currently teach two classes. It's, it's two of the same class. Oh, and nice. it is a class called AC circuits. That's alternating current circuits. So it's basically, it's like an extension of what you would learn in physics. Um, about how electricity works, about how you deliver power to a device, about how you measure that, how you maximize it, et cetera. Quarter's going great because we're at the end. Um, <laughs> one of the things about teaching at a, a, a teaching school is not only is the teaching workload high, but it is also extremely exhausting because I like to say um, taking an engineering class on the quarter um, schedule is like drinking from a fire hose. 
And um, when I was at Georgia Tech, it was also on the quarter. So I have experienced teaching and learning under one. So I greatly understand the challenges with that from both sides of the spectrum. The other responsibilities I primarily have are advising the National Society of Black Engineers, also being a freshman advisor for the Rosebud program. Um, I do their academic advising, career counseling, et cetera. Once they're in the program, they stay with me from their freshman to their senior year. Part of that model is peer mentoring as well as faculty mentoring. In addition to having a scholarship, they also have some of them are interns. They have responsibilities for doing their own professional development, such as participating in the Center for Diversity activities, offering things to the younger um, students in the program, such as study breaks, career fair prep, resume feedback, et cetera. So I'm mentoring and guiding that program at the same time. So those are just a few of the things that I do on campus. But, you know, as you've already mentioned, I also have a whole nother parallel universe outside of campus that has my own mission as well. Yes. Oh, I can't wait to get into your own mission. So you're teaching that um, circuits class now. And so you're teaching two sections of the same class. I love when I only have one prep. It's great. Um, do you know what you're teaching next semester? Is it going to be the same class or something else? And I would love to know um, kind of like the breakdown of the time you spend teaching versus the time you spend doing your robotics work um, in your um, endowed chair position or role? Okay. So yes, I do. I know what I'm teaching for the entire year. We plan it out a year in advance. So I teach a total of eight classes per year. So okay. I will teach three winter quarters. So I call that the, the Hades quarter because <laughs> once you're teaching three classes, you don't know if you're coming or going. I will teach mobile robotics. Since I am co-founder of the multidisciplinary minor in robotics, there are some required courses for all majors. One of them is my mobile robotics course. So that course will have students from electrical and computer engineering, mechanical engineering, computer science, and software engineering. It always has a wait list, but there's only one me. And then I will also teach um, two of another class. So that means I will have two preps win a quarter. And that class is the follow on to AC circuits. It's called circuits and systems. So in that course, students learn about transient circuit analysis. And it's also an introduction to controls as well as signals and systems. My master's degree is actually in controls and controls is a precursor to robotics. So that's the class I will teach winter. And then in the spring, I will teach advanced robotics and I will teach another um, introductory circuits course for the freshmen. Circuits is a three course sequence. So at some point, the students will have me or one of my other colleagues somewhere along that three course sequence. Mm, that's very interesting. So I guess it works really well to have the um, quarter system um, with the three. In that case, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it gives you continuity of contact. So, for mm -hmm. example, if I have a student who really likes my teaching style, they can take me for all three of the courses in that sequence. And I have had students do that. Or if they decide that, you know, my style doesn't work for them, they can hop over to one of the other faculty, but they still take those three classes in a, in a row. Mm -hmm. Yeah, love that. Well, let's talk about your teaching style. So I always ask everyone, what are their most effective teaching strategies? And I see we have some similarities here. So you mentioned active learning, multimedia presentations, connecting concepts to real world problems. So how do you teach? Like, what's your teaching style? What have you found to work best with your students? What do you love to do in your classroom? Just share all the things. So one of the things I talk about a lot, and I've made um, Instagram and TikTok posts about this as well, is that getting a PhD, especially if you are not in the education field, does not teach you how to teach. It does not teach you how to be a good educator. 
it basically teaches you how to do focus research in some area, some technical area, which you're getting your PhD in. So because I knew I wanted to be an engineering educator, I started off early trying to also hone those other skill sets that I felt my PhD process was not giving me. So I started attending teaching workshops um, even when I was still in my PhD program. I even taught one summer at a high school. It was an alternative high school. And that let me know pretty quickly that mama needed to get on back up to um, college because I just couldn't do it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but so, yeah, I had a, I even got a job offer from a private school um, to teach math. And at the time I was teaching at Tennessee State and they asked me, um, would I be willing to take the job? And I was like, well, tell me a little bit about the workload. And they were like, um, yeah, you teach five different classes per day. OK, I am spoiled because I've been teaching university. So I think <laughs> I'm going to have to say no. So, so, so I will say that a lot of what I have become as an educator is because I went to so many future faculty preparation workshops as a new faculty member, as well as as a PhD student. I was a teaching assistant and I used to cover my advisor's courses when he traveled and I was not good at first. You know, I talked too fast. I covered too much information, even as a junior faculty member, I spent way too much time prepping and not enough time just breathing. So a lot of that has now um, influenced my um, teaching philosophy. So what I'm about to share, I will say I'm sharing as a full professor who has now been teaching for 20 years. So mm -hmm. I would not expect someone who is a junior faculty and is new and just getting um, on the tenure track process. I, what I say is most importantly is be authentic to yourself. Once I started doing that, it started to go a lot better. When I was trying to mimic and model what other people did, it did not always work for me. Like, for example, only black woman professor on my campus. So if I'm going in that room and I'm trying to model my teaching off of my majority white male colleagues, there are some prime opportunities that my students are missing off on. So now when I go in, you know, it's nothing for me to talk about, you know, pop culture, um, a little bit of my experience as being a social media science communicator, which my students find very funny, along mm -hmm. with the fact that I write romance novels. But if I try to hide those parts of me, I have now cheated them out of this experience. So I'm not a robot. So when I go in the room, even though they are not very good at this, it's their generation. Good morning. How are you doing? I, I do the whole Marsha Fudge on them. I didn't hear nobody say nothing. Good morning. <laughs> so I have to do things like that. But also... I use active learning, which means I make partial lecture notes and they are fill in the blank, but I also have all the videos on YouTube. So you can go and watch the videos on YouTube as many times as you want. But during my lecture, I face the student. So I either use a dot cam or I use a Surface Pro where I'm writing and I'm looking at them as I'm teaching. So it's more of a conversational approach. I very rarely write on the whiteboard or the chalkboard because I don't want my back to them. Because as I'm looking at them, I'm also gauging their reaction. I'm gauging if they're understanding. So I learn their names within the first week or two. And then I can sometimes look at them and say, um, Molly, I can tell that you have no idea what I'm saying right now. Ask me something. So sometimes, especially, they won't say anything. My, my daughter is shy. So I know what it's like to, to teach students who may be shy or feel embarrassed. So sometimes I will do things like, you know, if you don't understand, just blink fast if you don't want to raise your hand. But give me some sign so I can circle back and I can explain it again. But the other thing is my school being in engineering, it needs to be hands on and minds on, especially in electrical engineering, because it is sometimes very difficult to visualize some of those more abstract concepts. So every class in my department has a lab. 
So the lab is really where the rubber meets the road. Sometimes the theory may not mean very much to you, but when we go in the lab and we get a power supply and we build it and you see how the electricity makes this LED turns on or makes this blink or make a mistake and you see something start smoking, you know, it, it makes it all a little bit more real to you. So I think that hands-on and minds-on approach is absolutely vital. But I think also having resources available to circle back. Um, I give lots of feedback and I try to give it quickly. So if my students take an exam on Friday, they will probably get it back by Monday or Tuesday. This is something I'm dealing with right now with my high school daughter. Unfortunately, she has a physics teacher who does not return grade at work. And I'm trying to work with him to help him to understand. I'm not sure how she's supposed to learn from her mistakes when she can't identify her mistakes. There is a final coming. In my class, the final is cumulative. So absolutely, I return their work so they can learn from their mistakes. And then I do something, a, a strategy that I learned when I was at Spelman College. When I got my first D on my first calculus exam, my professor wrote notes on it. Come see me, come see me today. I do the same thing. I will send you notes. I will send you memos. I will send you emails. And if you don't answer me, I will walk up to you at the end of class. Did you see my email? I need you in my office this afternoon. I think, especially for someone like my daughter, she would need that. You tell her to do that, she's going to do it. But if you expect her at 15 to be self-aware enough to go, I need to go to my teacher's office hours. I'm not getting this. That's not going to happen. So I now find myself teaching the teacher. I don't know how well it's going over, but there's just some things that you have to be able to do. So a lot of the posts I do are I now I'm learning that these students are coming out of high school without the necessary study skills to be successful in college, which is why I created the engineering professor advice, because some of the things I'm saying to them, I'm thinking, okay, this has got to be common sense. But I'm now seeing, even after dealing with my, my daughter's teacher, no wonder they can't do it coming out of high school because there are teachers out there who are not even modeling some of these behaviors that we are expecting college students to have. So now I call my freshman 13th graders and that is the year that I'm trying to get you ready for what you have to do in college. And the ones who struggle the most are the ones who were straight A students in high school. They never took books home. They never studied. They just got it, right? And so now you're in high school and you're not just getting it. Now that you're in college, you're not just getting it. And you have no idea what to do next. They don't even know what to say when they come to office hours. Yeah, I love that you bring that up because I teach a lot of freshmen as well. And it really is not just about the math that I'm teaching. You're really kind of molding their whole college experience. And I like to try to help train them and help them figure out, okay, well, what ways of studying is most beneficial to you? Yes. It's not going to be the skills. same for everyone. Yeah, Study yeah. Skills. And going, going to the preparing. tutoring center. Another yes. one I do is learning how to send a professional email. Don't call me Carlotta. Don't call me Miss Barry. And don't assume I know who you are. So your yeah. subject line cannot be homework. Your subject line needs to be first period AC circuits. Mm -hmm. I'm in your class and I don't know how to do problem three. And when you come see me, I need to see something written on a paper where you try yeah. to do problem three. Don't come with a blank sheet of paper. Show me that you did something. You wrote a formula. You wrote a picture. I just did this with my daughter as well. I said, if you're on a test and you don't know how to do the question, write a diagram, write a picture, show me an equation. Give me something to work with so I can give you some partial credit mm -hmm. because nothing on the paper is a zero. Exactly. Something on the paper might get you one point. Now, I don't believe in the whole high school teacher 50% for nothing. Nothing from nothing is nothing. But no. if you write something, I will give you something. 
Mm-hmm. Help me. Yeah, I mean, a, a blank answer is definitely easier to grade, but that's oh, not what I want for them. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I want to circle back to like your teaching style in the classroom because I resonate so much with what you said. I also use a document camera when I teach. I also use like a shell of the notes that we fill in together. I do get a lot of benefit just from like looking at my students' expressions as they're working on their problems instead of turning my back to them because, you know, that's probably my opportunity for them to, you know, be on their phones. I don't know if you've noticed this. A lot, some of my students are not taking notes, but after I've written something up, they'll just take a picture of it. I'm like, are you ever going back to look at that picture? But I do like that you're like kind of letting your students know that you know them and you are invested in their success. So you will call them out and ask them, how are you feeling about this? Because it looks like you have a question. You should ask your question. Now, I will say that's only something I can do because I'm at a small school. My classes are never bigger than 30. Obviously, Mm -hmm. if you're in a lecture hall with 100 students, like when I was at Georgia Tech, you can't do that. So Mm -hmm. at Georgia Tech, I got most of my connections from the grad students who were the teaching assistants. In fact, my professors didn't speak to me at all. But what really made me to start being successful at a school like that was joining a study group, finding the community that studied after class. I was doing horribly in my classes and I was studying and I had the book. I didn't know why. And I go to the library one day and I found out my entire class would be in there rifling through every old exam this professor ever wrote called Word. They'd be in the the Word, but nobody, because I came from Spelman, I was new and they'd already been together for two or three years. No one ever thought to tell her, 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 me, that there was a secret sauce that I wasn't getting. So I would tell my students, absolutely, I'm here for you. But the other thing you have to remember about me is after 20 years, I don't always remember what it was like not to understand this anymore. I've now said it so many times that it doesn't connect with me that you just don't get it. So sometimes it's better for you to go talk to that kid in your class who just figured it out last week. And I will also tell them that's not always a 4.0 student. A 4.0 student is not always the best person at explaining. They sometimes are not even all that approachable or friendly. Go find you a good B or C student, somebody who clawed their way up to that grade because they can tell you way better than I can sometimes in a language that you understand. I don't mind you coming to office hours and talking to me. I'm, I'm there for that. But your community, your friends, peer tutors, we have tutors who are still in school and your age, that may resonate better with you. Mm-hmm. So understanding that there's more than one way to get there and more than one way to use those resources. Some things I have done in the past that I don't do as much anymore. I used to do paired quiz completion Um where basically you give them a quiz and two of them together can can work on it. One week, one person writes and the other tells them what to write. The next week they swap out. I've done that. I've also done um, paired problem solving where I then walk around the room and give hints. Um, Because I'm now more in the more of the advanced classes, I don't do a lot of that anymore. Um, In labs, they have lab partners, but I now have also some classes drifted to individual labs where you can work with a friend, but everybody has their own setup in front of them. And the reason I've done that is because although we really promote teamwork and you know that that's important, when they get to the lab practical and it's an individual grade, I understood that sometimes one person was over-reliant on the other and I'd be in the middle of the lab practical and have some, uh, someone crying, literally sitting there crying because they don't know how to turn anything on. They don't know how to build anything. And I'm like, I'm not dealing with that no more. So this this quarter, I did something different. I said, you're all doing the lab by yourself, mm-hmm. but you can talk to your friend, but you build together. And I had to start that because 
every class has a lab and I can't let you leave this one and go into the next one. And you can't do anything because you were so dependent on your buddy who was yeah. stronger at this than you were. Yeah. The first time you complete a full lab by yourself shouldn't be at the practical. <laughs> yeah. That's a lifetime. I'm telling you, I, I couldn't take it. And I'm not just talking about female students. I don't have that many female students, but I have had male and females in tears. And I'd be like, baby, I, I can't deal with the crying. So I tell you what, let's head you off at the pass and mm -hmm. take nine weeks to get you there yeah. instead of the day of the practical. Can you teach me this? Not right now, baby. I don't teach during tests. Teach yes. time is over. Yeah. Right. Same way when they miss class, they come later. Did I miss anything important? I said, if my mouth was talking, it was important. Don't ever walk in here and ask me, did you miss anything important? <laughs> and the other thing that's not, it's going to happen is I'm not about to teach you what you missed in class because you overslept. But you can definitely go watch the YouTube videos mm -hmm. and um, you can take notes. And then if you have a question, you can come see me. But that drives me. Don't ever ask me, did I miss anything important? If I showed up, it was important. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's so true. Let's get to this wonderful, like amazing advice you have, because as I mentioned, I found you on Instagram sharing awesome advice for STEM students. Mm -hmm. So when did you decide to create Noir Steminess and like how do you support women in STEM through your brand? Absolutely. So I decided during the pandemic, I was on sabbatical. Thank God. I applied for a sabbatical before the pandemic was even a thing because wow. you apply a year in advance. And so I knew in August I was going on sabbatical. And then in March, the entire world shut down and my school immediately went on sabbatical. And one of the great things is that a lot of my colleagues had never taught online before and were in a complete panic. I had taught online for the University of Phoenix and I had taught online courses for my university. So we took a four hour crash course where I'm running around the room showing people how to use a learning management system, how to upload stuff to the LMS. I mean, I was like, oh, my God, what have these people been doing? And so I'm now sitting at home. My sabbatical company is now in pandemic. And I was just like, this is a perfect opportunity for me. I'm an introvert at heart and people say they can't tell, but I am. I loved being at home. I love, love, love being at home. And so I just really, really started thinking about who do I want to be as a professor beyond the classroom and beyond my students who pay that high price tuition. And I knew my mission really was to diversify STEM. And what does that look like? And, you know, I've always been a STEMinist, but how does that look for black or brown people? And so that's where the nowhere part or noir STEMinist came from is promoting STEM to women and girls, but also with a special focus on getting more black and brown people in STEM as well. And so a lot of what I do is mentoring um, and coaching. I've done grad students, I have mentored faculty. And of course I do a lot of outreach, not only online, but through black and engineering and black and robotics, which I co-founded with colleagues, um, mostly engineering colleagues during the pandemic. So we do virtual workshops. Um, we do, we, we ship robots to people. We log into zoom. We show them how to build robots, how to write, build electronics, how to write code, how to write software. But we do a lot of mentoring of, um, young people as well as some not so young people. We open our stuff to everybody, even though it's called black and robotics, anybody can come mm -hmm. black, brown or whatever. Cause they're still having the benefit of being, of learning from a black or brown person in STEM. And so that has been a really, really um, major way that we have contributed. We've even had parents reach out and go, thank you so much for doing this for my kid. Because honestly, a lot of STEM camps, computer camps are ridiculously expensive. I tried to put my daughter in some. I'm like, these are things I could teach her, but I want her to go to Black Girls Code because I want her to see other Black girls doing it. 
I think I paid for one camp one week was like 500 to a thousand dollars. And I was like, this is completely unjustifiable. These prices are ridiculous. A black and robotics workshop is $5, $20, $25. That's why we do open source robotics. It is supplemented by our sponsors, but I'm shipping somebody an 80 or $90 kit to put together and they pay $25. Oh, that's right? beautiful. So, yeah. Because you can't open access to people who are resource limited by charging them 500 to $1,000, yeah. right? So that's a big part of what I do through my mentorship. And I like to say that social media is a huge part of that because I've been on social media since 2013. Now, I would post things here and there. Um, but what I found is when I started posting the engineering professor advice and the robotics videos and, you know, the AI art and my, my romance novels, People were hungry for that stuff. Like even people who were like, I don't even have a clue what you're talking about half the time. I'm just glad to see it. Right. You love and, to see it. Yes. You know, people just love to see it. Like on Twitter, I started doing um, engineering professor quizzes and I try to keep them simple, but people are like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm going to click something anyway. And so just the level of engagement that, you know, when I got busy, I stopped doing it. People are like, where the quiz is at? Bring them quizzes back. You know, so I've gotten interviews on national radio and television because of those quizzes and because of um, some things on my YouTube, YouTube channel, like hip hop poetry. I was trying to come up with a way to teach STEM concepts in bite-sized chunks to young people. So I did some hip hop poetry and some hip hop slam poetry and hip hop songs where I sing or I do a poem about some robotics concept. And I've actually played some of those for Girl Scout troops and they understood it. Right. Something that maybe would not make much sense to them if I tried to teach them in a technical way. But in a short song, it made sense. Oh, I love that. That is so awesome. One thing that I really loved about your story is when you had that time off, you decided to like reflect and think, wow, who do I want to be like going forward and how can I use what I've learned and my expertise and my skills to help other people? I really like find that often professors will have this like tug to like impact the world in a deeper way than what they're doing in their classrooms. And so like to take, take the leap and do that and share your content with the world, I think it's wonderful. And so I'm so happy that you're sharing it. Thank Thanks you. so much for sharing that. And yeah. one thing I will say, and I need to, to thank people more for this is I didn't think about that by doing that on social media, it would increase the visibility. You know, I was really just doing something because I wanted it to benefit my community. And the number of awards and accolades I have received in the last three years from that wow. are is, is mind numbing. And, you know, that's yeah. not why I did it. But it, it's, it lets me know that it was appreciated and it was welcome. Mm -hmm. And it was something that people just don't see. I had somebody because I do AI art as well who reached out and was like, I really am not a fan of AI art. You know, my daughter is an aspiring artist, so she's not a fan either. And then they went and looked at some of the things I was posting and they said, although I said I wasn't a fan, I get it. You don't see this anywhere. It's not like I'm mm. posting Van Gogh images in AI mm -hmm. art. I'm actually posting girls soldering electronics, girls cool. building bicycles. Um, you know, little brown girls writing code for video games. We don't see this anywhere. Yeah. And I didn't do the AI art because I was trying to become an artist. I was doing it to market noir stimulus. And mm. then I started having K through 12 teachers emailing me like, I went to your website because I want to buy these images for my classroom and I can't find them on there. And I was like, because I wasn't selling them. I was doing it as a marketing tool. <laughs> and now teachers are asking, can I buy these pictures from you? Because I they wanted that. 
you know, a special education um, teachers were like, my kids need to see images on the classroom walls that look like them doing math and science. So the, so the most good. popular image, it's a dollar. I sell it for a dollar because I really, I'm not trying to make money off of it. There's one of a little black boy with um, locks solving math problems. I've had like five people buy that picture uh, because they just wanted to have a picture of a little black boy doing math in their classroom. I love that. That's so amazing. And something you never set out to do that's really like yeah. affecting people. That's so yeah. cool. Let's talk about more imaginative things as well. Okay, so you're a fiction author and you write black STEM romance novels. What led you to that? I think that is so cool, so exciting. <laughs> Can you tell us more? Absolutely. Elevated Inferno and Breaking Point are the first two. They came out last year and this year. I'm currently editing Heart Lessons even this month because it's National Novel Writing Month right now. Oh, that's but awesome. Where I'll, that's I'll put um, the names in like the description of the video absolutely. in the um, show notes. Thank you yeah. for that. Yes. So um, this, I'm telling you, this pandemic was life-changing. So not only was I sitting at home with my colleagues and we started Black in Engineering, Black in Robotics, and I started Noir Steminist, but a group of Black women engineering professors, we were all sitting around talking about how we really got to devise a way to change the vision of engineering. You know, it has a marketing problem. Like I talked about MacGyver, Dilbert, nerdy, tape on your glasses, pocket protector, can't <laughs> look you in the eye. You know, um, what's his name? From, I can't think of his name right now. Lord, it's gonna come to me in a minute, but anyway. From Big so, Bang? Um, or? So we were thinking about how could we do that? And we were like TV, so we were brainstorming, TV shows, um, YouTube series, movies. And we had discussed it and we said, we probably should start with something simpler, like fictional books. So the four of us came together and we decided we were gonna do something called Catalyst Chronicles. Catalyst Chronicles was going to be black women in engineering who are catalysts, like it's a play on the science term catalyst. And um, we all started writing and then we quickly learned it was more than just a notion. All of us have technical degrees. We know how to do technical writing. None of us knew how to do fiction. And so the books we thought we were going to get done by the end of 2020, because, you know, the pandemic in our minds was going to be over at the end of 2020, it just did not happen. But in the course of that journey, we started identifying people in the community who do fictional writing, who, who really embraced our vision, and they became our mentors and our coaches. One of my mm -hmm. primary mentors and coaches right now, I met on Twitter. Um, so she taught us how, how fictional writing is different from technical writing. She was like, y'all are being way too wordy. Your, your language is way too high level. Like my girlfriend was like, girl, I have to have a thesaurus to read your book. You know, so we had to learn how to, to write in a way that people who read the Sunday paper could get it. And what I did found is that not only did I want to write about black women in STEM, but I'm a romance head. So I decided I wanted my books to have a romance to, um, spin to them. And I wanted to show that black women in STEM, they love hard, they lose hard, they have success in their career, they have failure in their career. So my first book is all about a young lady getting her master's degree where her master's advisor is causing her drama because she wants her in the lab focusing on her research with robotics. And when she meets her boo thing, you know, you're now trying to do this, um, this, you know, this work-life balance of what I got to give up my man to get my master's. Mm. So, Cause these are real challenges that women in STEM have. Mm -hmm. How can I do both? How can I please my two masters and not give up anything? Yeah. So oh, that's, that's exactly good. what I do. So I do black STEM romance novels, but actually that first book that I wrote with those three women, only one of us has published our book because we all, once the pandemic was over, got busy with our jobs. 
But that book is going to actually end up being my first black STEM drama. So it's not a romance novel, but because it was my first, it's also the roughest. So it needs a lot of loving care before it sees the light of day. But we're really, it's really just about showing black women in STEM living their everyday lives with the hopes that people see themselves in what we do and understand that we're not geniuses, we're not super nerds, and that there's a lot of people who can come into this community who don't have to say, hey, I was great at calculus. One of the main things I get when people find out I have my PhD, medical doctors, pediatricians, whoever have said to me, was, yeah, I was an engineering major to that first calculus class hit me. Mm. And so I, I share with my students, I got a D on my first calculus exam at Spelman, I mentioned that. I failed classes at Georgia Tech and I'm still a PhD and they still call me doctor. By making people think that you have to be a super genius to do what we do, it already prices a lot of people out of the market. Oh, I love that transparency. Yeah. That's wonderful. Oh my goodness, this has been so good. Okay, this is awesome. I will definitely put links for all of your things in the show notes in the description. Um, but I do wanna ask before we go, do you have any like final bits of teaching advice for new college instructors? Because I imagine they're listening, watching in, just wanna get just a little bit, what can I like try to do right now? What could be helpful right now? Anything from the top of your head? Absolutely. I actually mentor a new faculty as well. I have mentored a few new faculty at my university um, who were either uh, instructors or visiting. I've mentored them through the job journey to go to a tenure track position elsewhere. I've also mentored new tenure track faculty. I'm mentoring one now in my department. And the advice I give is don't take yourself so seriously. It is a journey. It's a marathon and not a sprint. You will have bad classes where you teach horribly. You will have great classes where you basically were the star of the show. And you just have to understand you will not get it all overnight. I will be honest. And this is something I, I'm going to say, but I don't want new faculty to do this. I don't prepare for class anymore. I have now taught so many times that I know what I'm going to talk about and I have the materials ready and I walk in. But because I let reading the room guide how I teach, I don't do hours and hours on end of preparation. So one thing I would tell new faculty is set a time clock. If you need two hours to prepare this lecture for tomorrow, you take your two hours. Because I also was a victim of taking days, nights, weekends, writing, rewriting lectures. There's no such thing as a perfect lecture. Mm -hmm. You got, in my, my case, 50 minutes to get in and get out. Why did you take 10 hours to write a 50 minute lecture? You still got to get tenure. You still got to do research. You still got to write papers. You still got to go to conferences. There are other things that need to happen. Get a mentor. If, you, if your school doesn't get you one, find your own. If you don't get one at your school, find one somewhere else. That's a good thing about going to conferences is finding you a good mentor. Have them look over your lecture, give you feedback and move on. Something we do for the new faculty at my school is not only do they get a reduced, reduced teaching load, but we give them all the materials from the professors who've taught that class before. So good. I tell them the first time you do it, use our stuff. Mm -hmm. Figure out what you like and don't like about the way I taught it and do that next time. Mm -hmm. But stop trying to do it all at once. Rome was not built in a day. Limit how much prep time you're going to do. 100% learn your teacher's name. I mean, your students' names. Mm -hmm. But then also understand self-care is still important. Don't burn yourself out trying to be the perfect super professor out the gate. Learn your natural style and lean into that. My first year at my current school was absolutely miserable. I had come from an HBCU. I was now at a PWI. I was intimidated. I wanted to make sure I was doing everything right. 
I was so buttoned up and it showed in my evaluations mm -hmm. and I got some horrible evaluations and I had a horrible dynamic with some of my students. That next year I went in there and I was like, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to do me the way I do me. And it was an entirely different experience because people, they can smell the blood in the water. They can feel when you're all buttoned up and tight and you're so scared and I don't want to make a mistake. Honey, please. Now when I make a mistake, I tell them, honey, that was on purpose. I want to see if y'all was going to catch it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's such good advice. Mm. I think I was like, I used to over-prepare. I haven't gotten to your level where I just show up to class. I do just do like a 15 minute prepare one page and I'm good to go. But yeah, it takes work to get there. So I'm so happy that you shared that and like being yourself in the classroom, the students need that. They need to learn from you. Right. So Absolutely. Thank, thank you. Another so much. piece of advice yes. I'll give. This is something yes. I didn't used to do. I share a little bit of myself. Mm -hmm. I used to be like, it ain't none of their business. They don't need to be all up in my in my business like that. They don't need to be known. But by sharing just a little bit of yourself, it makes you a little bit more approachable and human to them. So every mm -hmm. now and then I might share a tidbit of um, something my daughter did or something that I talked to my husband about. Not a lot because I don't need them all up in my business like that. I can tell stories about that, too. But just something to, to give them that human aspect of who you are. Right. And I think that also made a difference. Mm -hmm. Like Beautiful. if I'm going through something or like I was going to be late for class one day and I, I just I emailed the class and said, guys, go ahead and go. Do not leave because that 10, 15 minute rule, you know, back okay. in the day, that's what we did in college. 10 minutes, <laughs> you give Mr. and Miss 10 minutes, you get PhD 15. I emailed them and be like, look, this highway is a mess. Sit there. I'm coming. You know, <laughs> but being honest with them and not trying to hide, you know. No, I would never be late. Whatever. They just need to know. Mm -hmm. So good. Thank you so much for sharing with us. This has been a wonderful interview. I'm so glad you were able to join us on this podcast. How can the people connect with you? Where can they find you online? So absolutely at DRCA Berry um, on most social media. I'm not on most a lot, but TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram are the main ones that I'm on. And CarlottaArdell.com is where my um, two romance novels, hopefully to be three soon, can be. Um, you can get information about them as well as my blog posts about my vision for what Black STEM romance is. And then NoirStimulus.com is where um, I have all the information about my workshops, my speaking engagements, a little bit about my writing, and um, a little bit about Black and robotics and Black and engineering. Hey, wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone um, who joined us and listened in. I will see you in the next one. Happy teaching.